Tonight, we were going to continue our conversation talking about uh, really personal financial management. We talked, we talked so far, far about God's view of money and that God's view of debt. And uh, this week, next weekend, we'll be talking about budgets. That's uh, some people saying, where are you going to find anything about budgets in the Bible? Well, actually, there's quite a bit. And then we'll wrap up the last one with uh, uh, God and generosity. But uh, tonight, I've asked uh, my friend Bill Dyer. Bill is, uh, well, a little bit of background on Bill. I've asked, yeah, who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> no, For 2017, Bill's... I just want to lose weight. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then go on a budget. <laughs> uh, actually, Bill's uh, been part of our church for 20, 24 years. Yeah. Uh, Bill is an interesting man. He's a uh, varsity ball player at uh, Whitworth, right? You weren't? No, I wasn't. I just did pick up ball. But our intramural team was better than our varsity, so. <laughs> well, see, all that, all these years, I've thought that you. Yeah, well. Oh, that's, well, anyway. We can play a game of horse sometime. You'll feel better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, but Bill is a, he's a, he's an inventor. He's an entrepreneur. He's run a lot of businesses. But he also handled a lot of personal financial counseling that we've done over the years. We used to send a lot of people to him with our, our really tough cases. And has a lot of experience and insight into some of the questions that we're going to try to talk about tonight. So we have some questions we're going to go through and, and, and converse about. And then if you have some questions in particular, uh, we'll give you a chance to ask those. Uh, so let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer and we'll get into this thing, okay? Father, I thank you for our time tonight and ask that you would just graciously speak uh, to us. I pray that you'd give Bill and I wisdom as we uh, try to address some really uh, pretty challenging questions that people have. We, our lives get complicated, Lord, and, and sometimes so complicated that we really need wisdom from above. So, Lord, we pray that you would uh, speak to us through this time and use it not only for your glory, but for our, our blessing, Lord. We want to be free from the burdens that oftentimes finances create in our lives or the lack thereof. We ask for grace in this. In Jesus' name, amen. So anyway, here's the first question I have, which is a, a, actually a pretty common uh, problem or challenge that people face. It says, uh, I'm curious to see what your input is when it comes to couple, a couple having joint accounts or not. In other words, you have a husband and wife, they have separate, not just checking accounts, but they have separate accounts. Uh, it's something that I've been struggling with, and my husband and I view it differently. Uh, I've looked in the Bible for direction, knowing that it obviously wouldn't say accounts. But I'm not looking for you to solve my problems, thank you, but just looking for some insight that will help me through my struggle. So, Bill, I'm sure you've encountered this before, right? Yes, I have. <laughs> Do you and your wife have separate accounts? Is that no, we don't. But I, she, she's a stay-at-home mom, and I work, not to imply that she doesn't work. So I hope this isn't recorded. So. <laughs> no, um, I thought about this because I, I ran into this question a little earlier today. Ken got it to me, and I thought, you know, marriage is a lot like your walk with the Lord. You start off with a certain level of faith, a certain level of trust, and you're venturing into areas in a marriage relationship that you haven't maybe been before. And a lot of times I found out with churches that they don't do, they do marital counseling, but they don't do financial counseling. And all of a sudden you're putting young couples into a scenario where they're having to work things out and they have separate jobs. And, and then sometimes the husband can be 
overwhelming and say, well, you know, wives submit to your husband in all things, but as Ken was saying earlier, in some situations it doesn't say you need to be stupid either, you know. <laughs> so uh, to, to me it's, it's uh, a matter of trust, and uh, trust is a thing that is it's constantly growing in a marriage relationship, and if you have two separate accounts, I would, I would really assume that down the road it's going to become rather... Um, unnecessary because the level of trust between the two of you comes to a certain point where you're going, what are we doing this for? Why don't we just put it together? We've been married for X number of years. But to me, it's a, if, if there's an insistence on having separate accounts, uh, give yourself patience, give yourself time to let that meld into, you know, as a, in your marriage vows, you know, now you're one except for finances. No, well, that doesn't make sense either, you know. So as you grow in your relationship with your spouse, there is a there is a growing trust that just keeps growing and growing and growing. My wife and I have been married for 41 years. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's, it's something that's, uh, you know, we're always working it out together because the challenges are always changing, you know, in terms of, you know, how do we, you know, do this? And now we've got grandkids and they're needing help. And, you know, there's just all these little variations that come up all the time. So... Uh, we're kind of we kind of avoid having a um, what's the word I want to use? We kind of avoid having something set in stone. So there's a lot of flexibility that goes on, and the more that you work with your spouse and keep those needs in front of each other, then you wind up working together, and pretty soon it becomes kind of absurd to have two separate accounts. That's just my opinion. Well, it's interesting because it really, what I think that there's a reason why the Bible says we should ask for wisdom. Mm -hmm. In life, because there are a lot of those situations, I I hesitate to call them gray areas, but there are there are areas of life that the Bible doesn't give really specific advice upon, and it certainly doesn't. There's no place you can say, well, you can't have two accounts. But I, you know, I often one of the things I I, I try to see to, to communicate to people is that when conflict on any level or any kind arises in a relationship, it's usually um, the thing that you're struggling with is rarely the real issue. Usually the issue is something deeper. And uh, it was as I was thinking about how, what does the Bible say about this, I thought here, when the early church was formed, they all came together and had all things in common. And the reason they did that is because there was a unity of the Spirit and there's a mutuality of trust. And then all of a sudden there comes on the scene this couple called Ananias and Sapphira, mm -hmm. which so threatened that trust relationship that I think that God actually struck them dead. Because I say that the Lord struck them dead because the text says God killed them. But uh, basically, it's something that was so disruptive to the unity of the early church and this special thing. Uh, because what divides in, uh, relationships, even and, and all the way up to na national relationships, is when there is such a depth of distrust that people begin to react in terms of their own personal safety or what they perceive as their safety. What can I do to protect myself? And so you find that uh, when, when, uh, whenever my wife and I have a disagreement about monies, um, you know, it's, first of all, it never arises when we've got plenty of it. Yeah. <laughs> Disagreements about money arise when we don't have, have enough and you're deciding what to do and how to divide the pie. But the, we've discovered that um, fear is this dynamic that often comes in in the conversation. And that's what really causes every man to look to his own. And you begin to divide and fight over those things. And uh, so I don't, you know, I think that 
do I think that somebody's in sin because they have separate incomes? No, not necessarily. Uh, but at the same time is I think that you need to look at that and say, okay, why is it that we don't trust each other? What's going on here? And you've seen situations where maybe the woman is wise not to trust the husband? Very much so. <laughs> you were relating a story. Can I, I get into this without to... mentioning names? <laughs> well, don't mention any names, but I, just, okay. I don't know how free, you're, there... free you feel well, to share it. But... <laughs> I did a, probably the most difficult financial counseling I had was a, a woman that had lost her first husband and her parents had died, and she had inherited over $5 million. Well, her second marriage, she married a very blue-collar worker who was a new Christian, and all he kept jamming down her throat was that wives submit to your husbands, your money is mine. And so <laughs> I'm just going a time out here because he wanted to be the entrepreneur. He wanted to, during the energy crisis, he wanted to go down to Pasco and rent a locomotive and, and, and bring it up to Spokane and then funnel all the electrical generation from the locomotive into the power grid here and they'd make lots of money. And I'm just like freaking out, you know. I'm just like, you don't want to do this, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, eventually, you know, I told her, I said, you know, don't, you know, you can't do this, you know. And, and this, you know, your husband here needs to just kind of grow up a little. I didn't say it in such harsh terms, but, uh, you know, there needs to be some gelling, some trust that goes on with the two of you. And they're still married, which is really, really good because the the issue was absolutely huge and it lasted for four and five years and about three years ago I ran into him and I said hey how's it going and he goes well he says I've, I've kind of learned to get along with my wife in these areas now <laughs> so but it was it was interesting that uh, you know again it's it's, it's a, it was a fine line to walk and it was it was uh, just a real misinterpretation, uh, or let's put it this way, is a real harsh implica uh, application of Scripture in Ephesians, you know, to, uh, uh, to the wife. And at the same time, you know, in Proverbs it says, hey, a fool and his money are soon parted. And I'm seeing that this is definitely about to happen. So anyway, it was a little bit of a difficult one there. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, especially when, when somebody feels like they have a, a big biblical argument for something, and sometimes it leads to extreme. But I, I was just thinking about how that uh, Paul writing to the Philippians, and I think this applies not just to the church, but it applies to any kind of relationship that you're in, particularly marriage. He said that he says, therefore, if there's any consolation of comfort in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, all those things should be in a marriage relationship. By the way, if you're not sure of that, if they, if there's any of that at all whatsoever, fulfill my love by being like-minded, having the same love being of one accord and one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each person esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, when that, when that is something that we try to apply to our life faithfully, it, it affects relationships. And uh, when, when I think that we feel best hanging around people that we believe are safe, and, and one of the things is that safety comes out of a trust relationship. If I can watch how you live your life and my interaction with you is, is loving and gracious and so forth, and I believe that you have my interest in mind, then I'm going to feel safe in that relationship. And that's why I think you, you need to go back and say, why is it there's a lack of safety? In some cases, it's because the husband was much less mature. I know for a fact he was much less mature in the faith than his wife was. Uh, not a bad guy, but... 
you know, there's when we're, we're immature in the faith, we co-mingle our ideas, both biblical ideas and oftentimes uh, concepts that we had before we were saved. And part of the maturity process is, is learning that difference. But nonetheless, in your case, I mean, it was, they came for help, they came for submission, and, and uh, hope you basically protected them from really making a bad choice. But I think there's a lot of cases where I find that women have trouble trusting their husbands financially because their husbands have behaved irresponsibly in terms of finances and haven't really looked for the welfare of the family. And I think it's important that a woman at that point kind of stand up and speak to that issue because, um, you know, I just know that the Holy Spirit moves in many ways in my life, and one of them is through my wife. Um, that God often gives her a voice into my life that I would probably just blaze right by certain issues. And she's the one who says, hey, you know, put the brakes on and let's have a conversation right now because I know I'm not seeing something that just is just screaming at her. And that's the idea of being in that relationship. And I think when we pull the submission card at that moment, uh, well, basically, when we say a, a man who is his own lawyer is a fool, and a man, you know, a man his own lawyer is a fool for a client, and so forth. Well, it's the same way in marriage. A man who doesn't listen to his wife is a fool, because and a wife who doesn't listen to her husband is being foolish as well. So, it, it gets down to when Jesus says He made us one, like Bill said. That's mm -hmm. that's kind of a fundamental thing. I don't know. Anything else you want to throw at that one? No, let's go to the next one. <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> okay. Okay, the second question was, what are some of the age-appropriate and practical ways to keep, teach kids about handling money, especially regarding the dangers of credit cards, debt, get-rich-quick schemes, etc.? What did you do to keep your boys out of that stuff? Well, we homeschooled. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, what we did, we, there was other things besides money that had value in their lives, even when they were very, very small, you know, even if it was a toy or whatever. And what we did was sort of translate that into money, say, like, here's how much you would have to earn in order to get the Millennium Falcon or, you know, G.I. Joe or something like this. And so there was a connection between money and product. The best description that I, I heard uh, about money, which I shared with both my sons, is, is money is condensed time. And that's why people steal it. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's fascinating because if, if you look at why there are thieves, it's because they don't want to work for what they steal because they have to work for it, right? So uh, when, my, when my kids were little, we kind of taught that concept, and, and we thought, well, allowances, but allowances don't teach them anything. It really just gives them a bunch of money. It doesn't tell them how to manage it or how to do anything of that sort. Or say, you know, when I was uh, in what, sixth or seventh grade, my parents made me earn half of the money for my new 10-speed bike, and they would uh, promise to match funds. Well, that was really good because it put value on, and it gave me, uh, you know, a vision, so to speak, of you know where I needed to be at a certain time with making money I was making on my paper route stuff. So, as they get older, you need to start translating those early lessons into, you know, credit cards and and you know, uh, debt and things like that. My grandfather uh, was a multimillionaire. 
He died in 1966, and the government took 75% of it in state taxes, <laughs> which wasn't cool at all. Are you bitter? I mean, I'm, I need counseling. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so, uh, but he said something interesting. He wrote a letter to all of us grandkids, and, and the letter he wrote to me was, was that the only thing you ever wanted to go into debt for is a house and a car. He says, do not get into credit cards, pay cash for everything else. If you can't do that, then you need to adjust your lifestyle or get more income. So, and I still have that letter back at home. It's really kind of cool. So, yeah. Well, it's an, I, I wonder, um, when you talk about, they ask the question, age-appropriate stuff, I mean, I think about, can you start, how early do you think you can start teaching kids about financial responsibility? Um... I don't know. I threw you a curveball there. <laughs> yeah. Actually, thanks I, I have, for that. <laughs> I have an opinion. I'm setting my own question up. Okay. Well, Ken, what do you think about? Oh, how thanks, Bill, for asking. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, I think I think the first thing we need to teach children when they're old enough to comprehend that we're talking to them mm-hmm. <laughs> is uh, the the value of personal property. And this is something that's a concept that's lost. But you know, uh, if a kid doesn't understand, if a child doesn't understand that some things belong to them and some things that don't. Mm-hmm. You know, some parents believe that, you know, that's, uh, we're being too, too picayunish with kids. But I think kids need to understand that they can't just take whatever they want and there's a personal responsibility. This came to me really early in life because I remember I, I was in, the, uh, in a, a store with my dad as a little kid. And uh, uh, as we were driving home, my dad looked at me and said, where did you get that toy? <laughs> and... I was holding this toy in my hand, and I, I knew exactly where I got it. It was on the counter, and I just picked it up, and I put it in my pocket. I, my first klepto act as a child, you know. I mean, I was a little kid. And he whipped the car around, took me back, made me walk into the store, give the manager the toy, and apologize for having taken something that wasn't mine. And it's, it's a funny thing, because... That, for me, was the first concept that some things are mine and some things aren't, and I can't take something that doesn't belong to me. Because part of the idea is that I I see a lot of young people growing up with an entitlement mindset, that because I'm breathing and sucking air, that I'm owed certain things in life, and you're not. I think the kind of lesson you're talking about your parents teaching you really does make you aware of the fact that there are things that, that uh, do not belong to me, but there are things that I can acquire if I'm willing to exercise deferred gratification and hard work and those kind of disciplines. But I think it's important that we don't, um, we don't give kids too many things too easily and that, on the other hand, uh, we don't make it so hard or so impossible that they get discouraged and give up and stop trying. But... Um, that's kind of a challenge. Yeah, it, it's, and as he was saying, as they get older towards their middle teenage years and on, they get much more aware of the value of money, and it's not simply for the purpose of acquiring things. You know, uh, The whole concept of having your money work for you through different investments or, or uh, those kind of things all of a sudden will turn a lot of lights on because it requires patience to watch money grow. You know. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in what was it when Jimmy Carter was president? The interest, interest, the prime rate was 21%. Yeah. And I told this friend, I can get better rates from the mafia. Just, <laughs> I just don't want to be late, you know. So, <laughs> but uh, you know, if you, you explain interest to them, explain credit cards to them, explain how they're going to be paying twice as much in the long run for things you purchase with a credit card, you know, 
uh, and, and just a simple thing like my grandfather had taught me was to, you know, just, just a house and a car, you know, don't go into debt for anything else, you know. Um, and it, it's really hard, around, especially this time of year around Christmas time, because you've got all these relational obligations, you know, to, you know, family and friends and Christmas cards and, and, and relatives that you're supposed to buy something for everybody. And if you don't have that kind of liquidity at the end of paying all your bills, then you go, oh, let's just put it on the card. We, we'll pay it off later. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know, so it's a, it's a real trap. And you'll find out a month or two down the, lo the road that, you know, you've got a three, $4,000 bill or whatever because you just wanted everybody to love you because they got you a Christmas present, you know. <laughs> you gave them a, a present. Well, I remember when, when I was a kid, and this may be helpful for some parents at this time of year, my parents uh, knew that I didn't have enough money to buy presents for my brother and for my mom and dad, so they, they gave us money, but they put us on a budget. They said, here's, here's your money, and you need to go and decide how you're going to allocate those funds for the gifts and what you can afford in terms of, you know, so for me, a little kid, I, there was four, you know, three of them, so I divided it by three, and they each got whatever I could afford, and it was, uh, I used to hate it because my brother was always so much more shrewd in how he did it, and always made me look bad, but nonetheless, it, it's the idea that there just isn't an unlimited amount of money out there, but you, you need to have, handle that. The other thing that we did, which I was very thankful for, is when we came to the larger family, we put names in a hat at Thanksgiving and drew out the name, and you were obligated, and we put a dollar limit. You could only spend so much on money on a gift. So when the larger family came together, as ours did in those days, it was, it, it, nobody felt this pressure. Because part of the thing is I think Christmas becomes so oppressive. I mean, you just feel so much pressure and so much, much guilt. And, um, you know, because if you don't do it, the economy is going to fail. <laughs> it's your job to keep it going. So um, I hope those are helpful guidelines, some tips, because, they, yeah. Um, yeah my, my wife's family did that, too. Everybody picked a name for someone else in the family, and that's all they had to buy the present for. So, you know, I was always hoping for a two-year-old, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing I hated is my brother and I always got from my parents exactly the same thing. A tie. <laughs> he got a blue ski coat. I got a green one. He always got the better color, too. I never understood that. Why? Anyway, I think my, my parents liked him better. That was probably it, but... Let's move on to a third question. He says, if we know God is wanting us to go into another direction, but our fears of having a lower income and other uncertainties consume us, how can we trust and try to overcome that hurdle in our larger calling? Well. <laughs> You've done this several times, Bill. I know that. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, Real risk taker over here. Yeah, yeah the, the thing that is always exciting about starting something new is re the realization that the Lord is in it. Um, the Lord led me very clearly to start a new business uh, after he worked me to the bone, <laughs> punished me doing tree work for my high school sins, I guess. Um, but um, the... Um, let's see how I phrase this here. Um, you have to, let me put it this way, don't make up things to take faith for, I guess is the best way to do it. Some of the biggest financial binds I've ever gotten into was that, 
you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to ask God to bless it, you know, where I kind of go into a lot of the scriptures and it says, God always appeared to this person and said, calling you to do this and calling you to do that and calling you to do this. And I always thought, okay, that's, that's the predisposition I'm going to have when it comes to major life changes now is that, you know, I'm going to wait for the Lord to inexplicably and very profoundly show me that I'm supposed to move in this certain direction. Uh, I used to make a lot of financial mistakes because I'd chase after all these ideas and just really believe for the Lord to bless them. So in terms of the question, it's, uh, it's imperative that the both of you, whoever you are, <laughs> sit down together and really, really crunch numbers and, and maybe sit down with, I'd be glad to sit down with you too, uh, go over the details and maybe a look at things you may have missed in terms of, I'm assuming, starting a new business or, or changing jobs or something along that line. Uh, but it's, 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 you know, it's, you're, it's very important that you put yourself in a position where you don't let the foxes, you know, uh, nibble away the vine and you didn't even know they were there. So um, that's, that happens a lot when you change jobs, when you make a lifestyle change. I went from a service business to a product business and it went from, from dealing with things on a local basis to working with major corporations now. And, uh, and it's, you're just, I don't know how to explain it. It's, you have to be so careful <laughs> if you're changing jobs. And it's gonna, and if you need to scale down and you believe the Lord's leading you to do that, then do that. But it requires a whole lot of uh, prayer, it, and then that's just first and first and foremost. You have to have a lot of prayer with you and your wife, and you have to say together, together that we both believe the Lord is speaking to us to move ahead with this. We both believe the Lord is leading here, and and it's not it's not wrong to do a Gideon thing. Lord, you know, can you show us some other confirmation here? Can you confirm uh, it to this through some kind of unaffiliated outside source. You know, and the Lord honors that because you are stepping out by faith. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, there is no rush. You know, be, just be very, very, very careful. And, and as I said, you know, if I can help whoever you are <laughs> with, with this, I'd be more than happy to. So I've been down this road a number of times and it's, 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 uh, it's you can hit some thin ice if you're not very careful. So anyway. Yeah, it's interesting. I think especially if you, if you speak to people who are trying to want to go into their own business, mm -hmm. and you've done this a few times, mm -hmm. and you know, but it's, most people don't realize that 90% of businesses, startups, fail in the first year. And after 10 years, the, the one, that 10% that survives in 10 years, only 10% of those mm -hmm. will actually still be in business. So... Um, it's, there's so many complexities, and the number one reason that a lot of businesses get in trouble is because they don't set enough money aside to pay their taxes. And a lot of them get put out of business by the government because they owe all these taxes and they can't, they can't estimate it. And so often I find people go into business and they, they're good craftsmen, but if you start a business, you're no longer a craftsman, you're a businessman, mm -hmm. and there's a whole other set of skills that you have to have. It's not just being able to do, you know, to build a house. It's able to be, manage all of those contracts. It's and, like becoming president. Yes, it's like <laughs> becoming president. It's a whole new job set, a whole new skill set. So I think those are becomes challenged. But even when you talk about changing 
professions mm -hmm. or even relocations, there's a tendency for people to, to miss, to underestimate the expense that lays out there. And I think this is where it affects a lot of people in their personal budget life because they've, they don't even see where their money is going, like you were saying, the little foxes that nibble away at the grapes. Right, right. Uh, I had a conversation with one of the staff guys here the, yesterday. We he was telling me that when he uh, uh, worked for a company downtown, that he said, uh, you know, I was talking about how people stop every day and get a Starbucks or some coffee stop, and they'll get pay four, five, six dollars for a coffee, you know, on the way to work. And I said, start adding that up five times a week. That's twenty-five bucks, a hundred bucks a month. He says, I did it three times a day. I was spending thirteen hundred dollars a month. He says, when I suddenly realized, oh, that's why I don't have any money. So you know, you, uh, it's amazing how that we can develop these little things and and because we don't really have a budget or we don't really have a, a sense of what our inflow is and what our outflow is, we can get really, really in trouble really, really quickly. And, uh, but I have, I might throw, do you want to say something else, Bill? Yes, I do. Go ahead, Now, the thing that was, was coming to me is that, uh, the mistakes I made early on in, the, in my business, not the one I'm on now, the one I had before, was uh, I was operating on a best case scenario. I was thinking, I can make, this amount of money per day, and I was basing everything off of a best-case scenario, and we could do this and we can do that. Well, when reality hit, it wasn't best-case scenario. I should have operated and made my planning around a worst-case scenario, and then if everything got better, then I had the extra cash to do what I wanted to do and to grow the business. But one of the problems, if that's the correct word to use, of being a Christian is that you can get really over-optimistic with your projections in terms of what you'll be able to do with your finances, whether it's you're being self-employed or even if you're, you know, you're an employee somewhere and making good money. And, you know, it's almost a, a fallacy. You're counting your chickens before they hatch. And it's just not a good idea. And I've seen this a number of times with, with startup businesses that they wind up planning everything around a best case scenario. I sold a my business to a, a fellow up in Deer Park one time. I used to own a tree service a long time ago. And uh, he was, you know, he was just sure he could run the business better than I could run it because he worked for me for a while. He came back a year later and he says, he says, well, you taught me some great skill sets. He says, but I had no idea I had needed so many sales. <laughs> so, so there's all these, these facets you need to be able to have a good grasp on before you even think of, of going into business by yourself or if you're even thinking of, of uh, spending money you don't have based on an anticipation of what you will be getting. Don't spend anything in that excess until you have it and then sit down again and make sure you're all on the same page because the last thing you need as a married couple is to be have one say to the other, I told you so, I never felt good about this, and da di da da which I've been through that too. <laughs> so, you know, so, but yeah, make sure you're on the same page with your wife, and if you make a mistake, you make it together, you, and, you, and if things backfire, and you say, you know, here's where we made the mistake, we weren't seeking the Lord about this, and we didn't seek any other counsel about that. You know, and it says through the counsel of many is wisdom, you know. So a lot of people get too proud or they get too protective of their own pride and, and are unable to actually go get financial counseling. So, Yeah. Well, in a little bit different aspect, too, and I'm, I'm not sure this question isn't specific enough that I know whether we're talking to somebody who wants to step out and start a business or they're talking about just 
a general sense of lifestyle change or career change or something like that. But I, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about the experience I had where in the 1970s I was involved with a, a Christian ministry and uh, then the, uh, there was a, it, 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 this is kind of unheard of, but basically the ministry split and blew apart and uh, everything started falling apart. And I spent uh, two years, uh, it was one of those things that they, everybody uh, left and they asked me to take it over. So I spent two years uh, negotiating. A, company, a ministry had gone from a $3.5 million a year cash flow to uh, um, a negative cash flow. And it was, a, it was a pretty hellish experience for me going through that whole thing. But I remember when it finally got down to the end and I, I put a uh, prospectus together for the board directors and I said, okay, uh, I, in three months I'm going to fire myself <laughs> and this is the process that we're going to go through. And at the end of three months, I'm done. I have, you know, and I, I had no prospects and no future. And I remember my wife and I sitting there looking at this reality and saying, you know, in three months I, I don't have any income at all and I don't know even what I'm supposed to do. And she said, I, and I said, oh, I guess I'm just going to go look for a job. Well, it's an interesting thing when you find yourself in that situation where you're not, not even fired, but you're the guy who fired yourself. I mean, you're, what kind of insanity is that? But it was interesting because I remember as we uh, finally got to the end of that, and here I now I was unemployed, and the next stop is to go in and uh, uh, look for a job. And I get this phone call from Chuck Smith, and he says, uh, what are you doing? I said, absolutely nothing. How'd you find me? I mean, I was living in a town in, in the mountains of Oregon with 600 people, and the pastor of the largest church in America calls you up and offers you a job. And I don't know what's wrong with me because I said, wow, okay, but uh, let me pray about that. You know, I'm thinking, what there to pray about? Why? But So I went and told my wife, and my wife looked at me and says, I'm not moving to L.A., I said, well, that presents a problem. <laughs> he wants me to come and be a marriage pastor at his church, and I don't have a wife who will go with me. That's not, somehow this isn't going to work. <laughs> I, I can foresee a problem because I'm really good that way. You know, it was crazy because I, I remember I just, uh, I said to her, I said, well, you know, the reality is I can't do this without you. Would you just pray about it for a couple weeks and, and see if God speaks to you? And so two weeks later, back she came back and says, you know, I, I don't like to say this, but I think we're supposed to move. But it was, a, it was an interesting thing to come to that juncture because we had, we, we developed a, 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 a five-step process for discerning what God wanted for our life when it comes to those kind of major decisions. And it, it, it's, these are simple ones. The first thing is we committed to prayer. We don't just assume that because it's a great opportunity or it looks good, this is what God wants because here I was, I mean, you could think about it, I don't have a job. Uh, I, I want to be in ministry, and I've just been offered a position by the largest church in America at the time. And you go, what's there to question? Well, but we still thought, how do we know that that's, that's God? You know, we just, so we prayed about it. We waited upon the Lord until we felt sure. And, and then we looked for confirmation in His Word, because the whole time we're praying, we're reading His Word. And God, sometimes as you read through His Word, He directs your thoughts. Mm -hmm. And he shows you stuff, and he confirms or he rejects certain things. And so that's where we started. And then the, the third step was seeking counsel. You know, it's, uh, there's safety in the multitude of counselors, Solomon said. So what we would, we just sat and would start sharing it with people that we knew and we trusted. What do you think? Do you, does this make sense to you? Does this seem like it's, it's a good fit for us? And then once we did that, then the fourth step is waiting. 
just waited. I waited a whole month before I called him back, which, you know, didn't work out real well because then he was on vacation for another month. <laughs> so, so I had, now I'm two months unemployed with no income coming in. Anyway, but, you know, we're in this situation, and, and finally, after we waited, we just knew this is what God wanted us to do, and the, that's where the fifth step comes. You have to act upon what you believe God is saying. And the step of faith is called that because you don't know for sure. Because in your mind, there's a thousand things that could go wrong or how this might not work out. And I, you know, it's interesting because I remember we put our house on the market. We listed our house. We have no income. And I just told the realtor, I said, you know, if it sells, it sells. And if it doesn't, we lose it. <laughs> Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, it's like, and we just took whatever, gathered whatever funds we had and we just got in the car and we drove to California and showed up. And, and it was, it was interesting process because right before it was the house would have started to go into the foreclosure process because I had missed payments, the house sold and we made $30,000 on the house, which was interesting because I didn't know that there was that much money in the world at that particular point in our life. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how God takes you through these things. But at the end of the day, it's God wants you to live in this faith relationship. And people are always trying to figure out how can we work out the dynamics so that we don't have to trust Him. And um, God forbid that you ever find yourself in that place. Because God wants you to always be in that place where you're just saying, Lord, we trust in you, we depend upon you, and, and the Lord provides as He wills. But it's a trust thing. And I, I can't think of any aspect of the Christian life where that doesn't come into play. Right. The, the thing that with me when I switched from a service to a product business, the Lord, brought, the Lord will bring you up to a threshold where you've done responsibly everything you can do in terms of getting all the information, crunching all the numbers, and doing everything else. And you're to that point where you have to make the step. And it's, it's difficult, but it's also, if you know the Lord is in it, you know, and if, if you put all of the steps previous together that brought you to this threshold, and then you go, okay, let's do it. And then you see the Lord meet you in it. It's become such an unbelievable testimony down the road because you can say, here's what the Lord has done in my life. And then when it comes to finances, which is usually the major area of warfare that you have, you can sit there and turn around, and as Jesus said to Peter, I'm, you know, I'm going to put you through this so you can strengthen others. And it happens very much in the financial realm, too, because, you know, in Malachi, you know, it, it says, you know, uh, you know, if you tithe, see if I don't pour out the blessings to you, see if I don't open up the riches to you and all this. And you're, you're going, well, that was good for them back then, but I don't know. This is the 21st century. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, but a lot of, a lot of it is you have to keep the little what ifs out of your mind after you've come to a certain place. The what if scenarios are good to a certain point because, because caution is good, you know, but there's a certain point where you, you, as a, a friend of mine who went into, to, used to work for an attorney firm in town here, and he said, Bill, he says, I'm thinking of starting my own attorney firm. I said, well, Bill, I said, you know, you don't want to get to a point in life where you say, say to yourself, I wonder what would have happened if I had done it. 
So he went and started his own attorney firm. <laughs> and he's very good, actually, in Bill Letter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Worked out. Yes, very well, very well. So, but yeah, it, it's, it, as I said, it, it gets down to your relationship with the Lord and wh where you believe he's brought you and how you can look back and say, I know he did this, I know he did this, I know he did this. And for all of a sudden, for him to say, okay, that was fun, see you later. It just doesn't make sense not to go over that threshold. So... So it's it's not just simply being a risk taker, it's yeah. a it's a it's, it's living by faith. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's and I and I I'm, I'm like I said I've seen you do this on a couple through the years I've seen you suddenly take these major steps, uh, creating tensions in the marriage. Um, only when I didn't listen to my wife. <laughs> there was a point with the, with the business I did own where I, was, I thought, well, we, all this stuff is lined up. We've got all this work. I could start another crew. So I used to own a tree service back in the 70s and early 80s. And, and you know, I, I picked this guy, and he was willing to learn. And I bought $30,000 worth of equipment, truck, and a chipper, and some other stuff. And Lanny was going, don't do it, don't do it. I'm going... You know, I'm the one that's in the middle of the camp every day. I can see what the needs are. She's going, don't do it, don't do it. Well, I went ahead and did it. Well, this guy blew out <laughs> within six months. I'm stuck with sets of equipment to pay for, one crew paying for three sets of equipment. <laughs> you know, and, and Lanny was going, tap, 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 I told you so. <laughs> so yeah. But, uh, you know, that's why I'm really emphasizing you have to be on the same page with your wife. You know, it, it doesn't say when you make it your, your marriage vows, you're, you're one now, you're one now. You know, it's not, it's not, you don't get an exclusion over financial decision-making processes. So, anyway, just an encouragement to work together. Well, there's some people, you mentioned, you touched on something previously about... Um, how that you can presume on God sometimes. Well, uh, I, I feel inspired to do this, so God bless this and bless us. And uh, there is a, there's actually a theology, there a, a teaching within the church that uh, promotes that. Uh, were you ever, did you ever get into that? It had a name, didn't it? Prosperity theology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I never got into that. It was innate within me already. <laughs> so, no, when I, when I first got started, we, we tried opening up an office over in Tacoma, and we bought travel trailers and for the crews to, to work in over there through the winter work. And I thought, well, I'm walking with God. God God's going to bless whatever I do. You know, well, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, you know, and then you, you wind up backtracking. Well, what mistakes did I make? How did I get in this position? And you wind up saying, well, when was the last time I knew the Lord was really leading me? Let's go back to that spot and then work forward without all the rationalizations based upon my own desires of where I want to be. You see what I'm saying? So you wind up backtracking and saying, okay, this is where the Lord last was showing me what to do here. So let's start back here again. You know, and, and one of the things the Lord shared with me was, was that, you know, got the scripture where he says he'll he'll get rid of the holes in your pockets and the, the oh and Haggai yeah the times Haggai lost and yeah. all that yeah. yeah yeah so that was a real real encouragement when we read that because we were definitely in that place through my own hard-headed bad financial decisions which my wife loved me through so <laughs> but that's but that's the wonderful thing is that God very graciously saves you mm -hmm. from these things and I think that sometimes we camp on the mistakes that are part of life and and uh, as someone once said, the secret to good decisions is making bad decisions. Uh, we, you know, we, we take a test in school and we, 
we, we miss some points and it reveals how much you know, but that's the idea. You learn by discovering what you don't know, not by just reinforcing what you already know. And that's the challenge. I remember when I, when I got my motorcycle and I, you know, I, I had to take the, get an authorization to ride a motorcycle. And I thought, I've been riding motorcycles my life. I, I don't, you know. So I'm flying back from someplace. I'm just flipping through the booklet real quickly, get off the plane, drive to the, down to the DMV. And I go up and they, I said, well, where do I take my test? Well, when I first lived in Oregon, I took my motorcycle test. You know what they did? They said, go out and drive around for a while and then come back. And I guess the evidence that you knew what you're doing was you came back alive. Alive. Because <laughs> I just, so I just rode my bike around for about 15 minutes, came back, and they gave me my, my authorization for motorcycles. So that's what I was expecting. And I walk in, and they have a computer. And you have to go and answer questions. And they're answering questions I never even thought of. And I flunked my test. And I mean, just, I mean, it was just, it was, it was a kind of humiliating experience that a guy like me needs on a regular basis. <laughs> I just, and I remember I went back and I studied that book. I knew that book because I did not because I was concerned about the safety. I did not want to have to face that woman again. <laughs> when she looked at me and she goes, "You flunked," <laughs> it was so humiliating. I was going to be sure I was never going to be humiliated again like that. But it's, I think that just if I can jump around a little bit here, because that's what I do, um, that theology, the prosperity theology, it's sometimes mm -hmm. called the word faith, that my word, uh, whatever I speak, I, because God spoke the word and he's the creator of God, therefore if I say something, I, I'm a son of God and therefore I have creative power and I can speak things into existence and you, know, you put the, the boat and the car in the house on, on the refrigerator with a magnet and you speak in faith that I'm going to have that car and I'm going to, you know, so forth. I've seen a lot of people get in serious financial mm -hmm. trouble because they bought the car in faith or they right. bought the house in faith. Right. You ever do that? Nope. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <I was laughs> but hoping. that person did over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think that that's uh, kind of presuming on God. And you can do that in, in larger and lesser degrees. But the, the, the simple reality is that God wants to prosper you, but God has a way in which he works in our lives that is dependable. And that's where we talk about his, his word. And we talk about when he warns us about the dangers of debt and he warns us, uh, and even I'll talk about this weekend, about how that there really are parameters that we're supposed to live in. And it, the simplest thing is when we have more outflow than we have income, we're going to be in trouble. Right. You yeah. know, like a boat that has a leak in the bottom. All right. Ah, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the thing that is most wonderful for being in the position I'm in and some of the risks that I've taken is that I've really learned how to wait for the Lord. You know, as, as Moses was going to go into the promised land and, and, you know, he said, I'm not going anywhere, Lord, unless you're in front of me and I have to see you're in front of me. You know, and it's not a, a it, it's not an unreal request and the Lord reveals himself to each of us in so many different ways, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, it's just a, what the pro, it's the processes that you see the hand of the Lord in. You know, the end result is something you're always assuming, you know, this is where I'll wind up through this process. But sometimes that's not true. You know, he takes you through a series of processes and he reveals his hand to you and shows you different ways you can be led and how he chooses to reveal himself in so many different ways. And it's the processes that really wind up you know, teaching you about the multiple facets of God's personality and how much he loves you, you know. So it's, it's really, really uh, a fascinating thing 
the road to the end is, is actually more rewarding than the end itself. And I do want to go to heaven, though. <laughs> yeah. Amen. I wonder, we, we're running out of time here, but I wonder if any of you have any questions. Anybody have any questions you want to ask that you feel like we haven't touched on? Anything at all, whatsoever. Got it. Yeah. Um, Student loans? What would you say about student loans? My sons are still paying off their student loans. Um, <laughs> um, I told my sons that I would pay for their bachelor's degrees, you know, at uh, University of Washington. And I said, anything on beyond that is your responsibility. Um, so uh, one of my sons uh, pursued master's and then went after his doctorate. And, uh, and it, you know, from what I heard today, <laughs> now don't rely on this too much, but uh, there's an $8 billion proposal being put up by the government to forgive all student loans. <laughs> so, so go into debt, you know. So, yeah. um, but, uh, you know, it's, again, it's something that needs to be handled responsibly, you know. Um, if you're on a certain path that you know, like my, my nephew is studying airline mechanics, he's becoming a top-line, you know, mechanic, he knows what the jobs are going to be. He's been offered jobs already, you know, uh, and he knows that he'll have his student loan paid off once he gets this job within two years, you know. And so it's that kind of understanding of what the job market is and how much you're going to be paid and that sort of thing, which kind of would be a decision-making uh, scenario for you in order to do it responsibly. But I don't, mm -hmm. you know... So my grandfather said, student loans, housing, and a car. <laughs> <So> <laughs> but that's kind of where I'm coming from on it. It's like anything else. You know, it, you're, you're paying to educate yourself. And then there's no other way to get to that position you want to be in if you don't have the finances to pay cash for it, which, of course, a lot of people don't. So, You know, some of the rules of thumb with student loans is, number one, never borrow more money than you can uh, earn within the first year of your job. And uh, so that many times people borrow far more money than they can easily repay over their lifetime. But, um, you know, I think that it's, it's like anything else. You should try to keep the amount that you borrow as low as you can. I, I love the programs we have in the state of Washington with Running Start, where uh, I know your boys did that. They get the first two years, uh, high school and the first two years of college, all wrapped up in one, and suddenly they're paying for... So he sounds very generous, but he only paid for two years. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you say that? <laughs> Which was a lot of money. I know. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, like, it's like any other kind of debt. And even though there may be $8 billion that they're going to put into the economy, uh, student loan debt right now in America is $1.2 trillion. And 11% of student loans are in default right now. And the problem is if you ever go in default on a student loan, your credit is, is damaged forever because then you are never in a position to refinance it. And that's another option people don't realize, that you can actually refinance your student loans. And uh, we did that with one of my son's student loan. We just wrapped it into, we, we remodeled our house and we wrapped it in and we got a 2.75% loan. And, uh, and actually we're still paying on that, <laughs> almost got it paid off, but it was like, you know, it's $40,000, and it was like, um, it's, it's, uh, but we, we went from, I mean, some of those loans were 7 9% and something like that, and so just by refinancing it down, we put it into a, a, a window where it was easy to reduce that debt, 
But there's a lot of things you can do, but it's just, it comes down to being smart. And the most important thing is pick a major or an area of expertise that there's a job out there for. Mm -hmm. Because, it, you know, um, you get a degree in English literature. You, or philosophy, or like philosophy, my son did. Latin, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> like, the, the word of, the rule of thumb with uh, my son's uh, degree at the University of Washington, he graduated in philosophy, and then he went down to Talbot, majored in Christian philosophy, and out of that, the saying came, what's the difference between a pepperoni pizza and a philosopher? Well, you can feed a family of four with a pepperoni pizza. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, and this is, this is, I think, a bigger tragedy right now for many kids. They're given this, they're basically told, if you get a college education, get a bachelor's degree, then you'll make X more amount of money. And it's just not really true. You have a lot of baristas who have a lot of education. And, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a number is going up of who cannot find a, a, a job that enables them to support a family and so forth and so on. So uh, student loans, education is wonderful. Um, I, if you're just concerned about getting an education, you want philosophy, uh, I love the <laughs> Frank Zappa's advice. Go to the library and read a book. <laughs> <laughs> or philosophy for dummies, which is what my son gave me for Christmas one time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, it's, 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 it's a delicate issue for a lot of people, but I was raised in a family where if you don't get a college degree, um, you have one option, and that's to pump gas. Mm -hmm. And I remember just at, at coming to this realization where, because I, I never finished my, I never got my degree. I never finished. I dropped out. I got saved. God called me in the ministry, and my parents flipped out because what? I mean, you, you're you're going to become nothing. You're never going to amount to anything. And I guess that's why I got this yeah. job. I don't know. <laughs> Everybody in my family's got a college degree, but me. <laughs> I went three years to Whitworth. My sons have all gotten uh, college degrees at UW. My wife is a uh, graduated from with honors from Whitworth, and her her dad. I don't know why he kept quiet, but he never warned her against me. <laughs> but her teacher, one of her teachers at Whitworth, did. She, she goes, "You're going to marry Bill Dyer." She goes, you may want to think twice about that. She says, <laughs> like that. So luckily, it all worked out. So anyway. Yeah. Good question, though. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a serious issue. It's going to have a huge impact. I talked to even a lot of our staff are uh, finding that a significant percentage of their income every month goes towards uh, servicing their student loans. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough for a young family starting out when you have husband and wife both, and you got 50, 60 thousand dollars in debt um, the hope of being able to buy a home and all this kind of stuff suddenly is so far out in the future let me correct that a little bit though here's what's really weird when uh, my wife and I bought our first house um, it was uh, it was it was really expensive it was twenty seven thousand dollars and um, we in uh, our mortgage was hundred and twelve dollars a month uh, but I got to tell you, it was hard coming up with that 112 bucks. But, you know, it was interesting. I, I'm 27 years of age, and I, I'm talking to my dad, and my dad says, son, you have to understand, your mom and I bought our first house when I was 47. So he said, you know, you're 20 years ahead of me. And, I, and it, so it's a matter of perspective. We, we have an expectation today, and every generation kind of has it, that my kids are going to have more than I had. And... Um, that's never been historically the way it worked. 
Some generations have more opportunities than others. It's very uneven. And uh, so you, you have to, again, what your expectations are, what your assumptions are. If you assume that you have to stop and, and get a, a $6 drink at the coffee stand before you go to work, uh, right away, I mean, you're making the assumption that you begin to find really quickly that those little amounts add up when you do them over and over again. And you might find yourself, I probably have somebody who has a stand here and they're going to hate my guts for saying that. But <laughs> it's, you know, there are so many things like that that you just, uh, when my wife and I, I remember when we worked for Chuck Smith, he, Chuck had a, had a philosophy of life that God would keep us humble and he would keep us poor. And he was true to his word. Uh, if I'd known what he was going to pay me before I moved there, I would never have moved there. <laughs> That's when he told me he called the wrong number. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, at the same time, what does it do? It is, again, it teaches you to, to trust in God. But, you know, we got really creative. What do we, how do we have a life? My, I had one day a week off, and it was Wednesday. So I had to work all, all through the weekends. And what do we do? Well, we, we came up with creative ways, and it became kind of fun. I mean, I look back at some of the, the, the warmest moments in our life with our family because my wife and I get in the morning, we take the kids to school, and then we would go to Bill's Burgers because Bill's Burgers had a 99-cent breakfast special. You got, you got a, a hot dogs and a couple of sausage or something. I can't remember what it was, but that was, that was our, that's the one time we ate out in the entire week. And then we go around and we do some shopping and get things taken care of, pick up the kids, go to the beach, which was convenient, and we'd roast hot dogs on the beach until it got dark and we'd drive home. But that became, I mean, it was a simple thing, but you realize that so many people feel like I've got to be able to purchase expensive things. We've got to go out and have exciting evening. It's got to be this knock dead experience because they've watched so many movies like 10 Ways to Lose a Man in 10 Days or whatever. Any, I got to admit, my wife and I love that movie. But anyway, <laughs> we've watched it about 10 times. But you know, we, we get this idea that it's supposed to be all of this stuff and you realize that uh, there's something valuable about poverty. There's something about being tough. As someone once said, uh, I think it was uh, Rich Mullen's dad said to him, there's nothing wrong with being poor. It's just inconvenient. <laughs> and I think that's the absolute truth. It can be really inconvenient, but also it can teach you some valuable lessons. Well, we've gone over time here. And just real quick regarding the last question. Uh, if you're going to be downsizing and you're fearful, really take a close look at the difference between your needs and your wants. You know, do you have to have high-def TV? Do you have to have this? Do you have to have that? Take a real look at it. Can we do without this for two years until things turn around? Or, you know, and, uh, you know, that's very applicable to making a lifestyle change, especially when you're possibly considering downsizing and having uh, less income and the same overhead. <laughs> so, Yeah. Do you have to? Have, I'm talking to one of my kids, and, and, and she can afford it, but still. It has this TV package, and it's $300 a month. <laughs> I'm just going, you know. But it's, it's, and you find people saying, well, I've, I've got to have cable TV, or I've got to have this, and I've got to have that, and I've got to have high-speed internet, and I've got to, you know, there's a reason God created Starbucks. You don't have to have high-speed internet. <laughs> you can use theirs. But the, we, get, we get hooked into some of these things, and, and, you know, if you can afford that, that's, you know, I, I'm not going to judge you for it. I'll leave that to God. But, you know, if you can afford it, it's a great, but, you know, the reality is we really can live with a lot less than we think we can, really a lot less. So, anyway... We're going to have to stop way over time. Uh, appreciate you guys uh, 
being here, and I hope we ask questions. We'll hang around here if you have some more specific questions you want to throw at us. We'll be glad to uh, confuse you even further. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that, um, I thank you for Bill. I thank you for his years of experience and wisdom and, and, and how you've taught him how to live by faith and to trust you. I pray, Lord, that we all could grow in that experience, but we also, Lord, would learn to, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, Lord. Help us to be people who are self-controlled. Help us, even if we have extra funds, to really kind of look at our, our expenditures and ask, is this really necessary? And I just pray, God, that you just give us wisdom um, and you'd keep people out of financial trouble, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.